Well, as we continue in our Daniel series, it would be really helpful to have your Bibles open or your Bible app ready. So looking at Daniel chapter 4, so we're week 5 in our series, Daniel chapter 4, we're looking at the entire chapter today. There's also an outline on the back of the news, or if you're joining us online, you can click on the link and see the outline there. But let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to God's Word. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us. And Lord, we ask today that in your kindness, please, would you be at work in the power of your Spirit, convicting us of pride, that we might in great humility recognise you as the Lord who rules, that all that we have is from you, and that we might commit our whole lives, ourselves, on every front line to your service and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Daniel is a battle of the kingdoms. Babylon versus the kingdom of God. But on paper, if you were to make a pair of kingdom scorecards, so you know those playing cards you get for different teams. Someone in our household is pretty obsessed with Pokemon cards at the moment. But if you made a, a pair of kingdom scorecards... Uh, and place them side by side, it might seem like a ridiculously lopsided or unfair contest. After all, on one side, there's King Nebuchadnezzar, representing one of the greatest empires that the world has ever known, Babylon. He's got all the trappings of success. He's got power, wealth, military might, a beautiful city, effective defences, not many earthly rivals. His kingdom looks mighty, strong, and secure. Only to be up against, on the other side, representing the kingdom of God, Daniel. Daniel, who has been ripped from his homeland, given a new name, serves at the king's behest, and his life, as we've seen, is constantly on the line. You can always think, go home, there's no competition, there is nothing to see here. Yet the message of the book of Daniel is that things are not as they first seem. That not only is God's kingdom the only lasting kingdom, but it's actually only by God's power that earthly powers rule. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're in charge, mate, but you need to learn that there is one in charge of you. That's the take-home point threaded all throughout this chapter. You see it at the beginning, the middle, and the end. That God is the one who is over all kingdoms and kings. And Neb, Nebuchadnezzar, you rule only because God, for this time, has chosen to give it to you. And so this is a lesson in humility. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is really just building sandcastles in between the waves. Now, there's been clues all along showing us who's really in charge. You might recall some of those clues. So chapter 1, remember Daniel refuses to eat from the king's table, the king's food, but but God still makes Daniel strong. Chapter 2, Daniel not only knows the king's dream, but he's able to interpret it because God enables him to. Or chapter 3, when uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are thrust into the fire, they miraculously emerge unscathed. So we've seen that God is God who reveals, 
God is the God who rescues, but God is also the God who rules. And what's perhaps most surprising of all, that I think really adds credibility to that claim, that God is the one who really rules, is that the source of the claim is from perhaps the most unlikely person, almost in the entirety of history, to admit that God is the one who rules. Because the source of the claim is Nebuchadnezzar, the epitome of a self-made person in a self-made world. And so chapter 4, it's a change of tone in the book because it's a letter. It's a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar to us. So would you look with me, verse 1 of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Uh, So you note there, if you consider yourself an inhabitant of the earth, did you note that wording at the beginning of the letter? to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. So if you consider yourself an inhabitant of the earth, this is for you. Nebuchadnezzar wants you to learn what he has learnt the hard way. So there's three parts to Nebuchadnezzar's learning, that God is the one who rules. A wake-up call, a judgment, and a change. So first, Nebuchadnezzar has a wake-up call. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So here is Nebuchadnezzar. He's just minding his own royal business. He's living his best life uh, in the security of his own palace. Warring at the time is actually lulled. All the building projects are complete only then for the palatial rug, so to speak, to be ripped out from under him by a dream. He's terrified. You might be wondering, how could a dream, just a dream, cause Nebuchadnezzar so much angst? Because it strikes at the very heart of what he holds most dear. His rule, his own rule. Despite looking so secure, all the trappings of security he's actually phenomenally insecure. That's what the dream points out. And the dream, of course, in a super abridged version, is about a tree that could be seen to the ends of the earth, was beautiful and abundant in fruit, but then a messenger from heaven commanded that the tree be cut down, its stump be bound with iron and bronze, which is an image of hope for future restoration, and that a man was to be almost decreated from human to animal for seven years. Of course, you've got to wonder if the reason, the real reason why Nebuchadnezzar was so afraid of this dream is that heart of hearts, he kind of knew what the dream was about all along. It's about him. He's the tree to be cut down. He's the man to become an animal. You'll note, of course, by Nebuchadnezzar's own admission, so verse 7 and 8, that it's actually only after he's exhausted all of his own uh, magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners, it's only then that he goes to Daniel, who's proved faithful in the past, to come and interpret now. 
you should hear this, it's only when King Neb's own resources have been exhausted that he finally, by going to Daniel, asks help from God. Despite all he's witnessed, Nebuchadnezzar is a slow learner, going to God via Daniel as a last resort. Yet Daniel, full of compassion, not only interprets the dream, but he even wishes that the dream wasn't for Nebuchadnezzar, but for one of his enemies. So verse 19, halfway through verse 19, Belteshazzar answered, My lord, that's Daniel, Belteshazzar, uh, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. It's really quite extraordinary that 600 years before Jesus commands to love your enemies, here is Daniel in the face of the king who destroyed his homeland, murdered who knows how many people, had changed Daniel's name, had threatened his life. Daniel has compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because the dream is a moment of reckoning. Daniel must long for Nebuchadnezzar to be saved. Nebuchadnezzar is the mighty tree that will be cut down to a dismal stump. Nebuchadnezzar is the great king who will be reduced to a wild beast. But this is not just some sort of wake-up call without a purpose. So it's not like someone who might prank call you uh, in the middle of the night just to disturb your sleep, if you ever had someone do that. My brother used to occasionally do that to me. Uh, it's not like someone who prank call you at midnight just to disturb your sleep. But this is a wake-up call to warn you that the house is on fire, to do something. Why has God given Nebuchadnezzar the dream? Well, we're told, verse 17, so that the living, remember the living that includes all of us, may know what? That the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Or as Daniel interprets the dream in verse 25, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge what? That the Most High is the sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. So this is an act of mercy. It's an opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to repent. That's why the stump is left in, in the image. It's restoration is possible. And so Daniel implores Nebuchadnezzar, verse 21, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel, of course, is not saying that uh, Nebuchadnezzar can do good his way back into favour with God, or that prosperity is a sign that you're in relationship with God. But this is a moment for Nebuchadnezzar to finally recognise that God is God, and that the rule that Nebuchadnezzar has, in fact, everything he has, is dependent on God alone. I want you to notice that, that if Nebuchadnezzar recognises those two, those two things, that God rules and that his own rule is from God, then Nebuchadnezzar will be compelled to lead according to God's ways, to serve. When he recognises that God is the one who rules, then he will rule in a way that honours God. 
there are moments so far in Daniel, there are these moments where Nebuchadnezzar seems to get it. It's like he's so close. He's so close to the line. So in chapter 2, when Daniel interprets the king's dream, you might remember how Nebuchadnezzar responds, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Or in chapter 3, when Daniel's mates survived the fiery furnace that Nebuchadnezzar got them thrown into, Nebuchadnezzar exclaims, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But his pride unchecked has prevented the truth of who God is from really sinking into his heart. See, God was always an add-on for Nebuchadnezzar, a God amongst his gods, kept at arm's reach, but with no real implication for his life. It seems that he, he seems to see God adding function to his life, or favours to his life, but not really being the foundation for his life. He can't seem to acknowledge the Lord as Lord because that would require admitting that he is not. He's living a lie. He's rejected the reality that it's God who rules and he's substituted his own reality that asserts that he's the one in charge. And so God will graciously bring Nebuchadnezzar to his knees in order that he can see what is true. Now, you would think that having been totally rocked to his socks with this dream, with this wake-up call, that, that Nebuchadnezzar would immediately fall before God and acknowledge him as Lord. But phenomenally, that's not what happens at all. We see judgment fall. So verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, twelve months, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Seriously, 12 months later, he's had an entire year to respond, but zero change. It's a great encouragement to us that that if you feel like God is giving you a bit of a wake-up call, Uh, to make him the focus of your life or to address some area of sin, don't delay. Do it now. We we must not underestimate our own power of self-delusion to that which is urgent and just keep parking it to the side until it doesn't look important anymore. Here is Neb. So just imagine the scene. Here is Neb. He's on the roof, all puffed up, He's surveying his empire. And the conclusion that he comes up with is, I'm pretty awesome. I mean, Babylon had not just one, but it had two of the ancient wonders of the world. So we read, verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. If it seems mind-boggling that someone could be terrified by the vision of losing their power, yet at the same time deluded by their own greatness, well, I think you might be really underestimating just how effective we are at lying to ourselves. The story of Nebuchadnezzar, and probably the story told him by those around him, um, telling him that he who was the boss 
about what gave him worth, well, it just kept bubbling up to the surface and being the controlling narrative of his life. In fact, every brick of the wall, the mighty wall of Babylon, some 15 million bricks, they were all imprinted with his name. So he wasn't just telling himself, but he'd surrounded himself with things and people to remind him of his greatness. The voice of that lie on repeat drowned out the voice of truth about God. This, this type of pride, in fact, any type of pride, is what Tim Keller calls a, a form of cosmic plagiarism. It, it's claiming to be the author of something um, that is actually a gift from God. It's like crossing out God's name and writing our own. Now, it's easy to sort of think, look back and think, oh yeah, but you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's just a bit of a maniacal doofus. Uh, I'm so thankful that I'm nothing like Nebuchadnezzar. But let's not delude ourselves. Now, we might not be getting up on our roofs to survey our conquests, and you know, for lots of occupational health and safety reasons, don't get up on your roof, but we might not be getting up there looking over all our conquests. But oh, how readily... We can stand on the foundation of what we think we alone have achieved and then marvel at what we think we've done or even that which we aspire to do. We can easily bask in that. We can try to impress others with that. It could be our our family, our resources, our careers, our study, our sporting achievements. It could be all sorts of things. In fact, we are really good at quantifying it, displaying it, and then marvelling at what we've done. It's what Justine uh, Toe, in her book of Achievement Addiction, so from the Centre of Public Christianity, describes in our culture that we operate with this meritocratic mentality, uh, a meritocratic mentality that says that hard work plus perseverance equals success you have rightly earned. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with looking at things in our lives and being thankful. But when we think, when we reduce to think that it's all of our own doing and for our own glory, we are on a dangerous path. God is showing Nebuchadnezzar what's really at stake. If when Nebuchadnezzar is standing on his roof, all he sees is what he thinks he has achieved... He fails to recognise the one who is the cause behind it all. He fails to trust in the only one whose kingdom will last forever. But if he sees that the Lord is Lord and that everything is from God, then he wouldn't have looked upon it and marvelled at his own greatness, but he would have immediately turned back and given glory to God and then deployed all that he had for the king whose kingdom will last. It would have caused him to think, not, I deserve all this so I can use it as I please, but God is the ultimate cause who has entrusted this to me, so I will make it my life's purpose to direct my all, serve all for him. Can you imagine what sort of leader, what sort of transformation that would have made of Nebuchadnezzar, what sort of leader he would have made. 
You know, what sort of king or what sort of boss or parent or friend would you prefer? What, what would you prefer to be? A kind of boss who, who thinks and is convinced that they are the one who rules and therefore holds on to everything tightly because they deserve it and then they demand to be glorified? Is that the sort of boss you'd want? Is that the sort of boss you'd want to be? Or, or the boss who recognises that actually God is the one who rules and therefore everything that I have is a gift from God and therefore must be used in service and glory of him. Which, which boss would you prefer? Which boss would you prefer to be? It's why we should actually be really active in our prayer lives that God would humble the self-exalted. But I think sometimes we can be actually too scared to pray that prayer because heart of hearts we acknowledge that also includes me. Verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power, the glory of my majesty? Verse 31, Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the most high sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. This isn't some sort of power play from God, but it's an act of mercy so that Nebuchadnezzar would turn to the only one who can save. And eventually, eventually, seven years later, that's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar changes. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar gets it. Now, you might think that being turned into an animal-like creature for seven years doesn't really sound like an act of mercy. But better a wake-up call that causes someone to turn to God than no wake-up call that leaves us perishing in ourselves. When he's on the roof, it looks like he'll last forever by his own strength. But praise God that the Lord provided the opportunity for that delusion to be cut down, that he provided that opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to change, to repent. The point is not do bad and everything is taken away, do good and you'll be given everything back. The point is that it's only when God takes away from Nebuchadnezzar what the Lord had given to him in the first place, it's only then that finally Nebuchadnezzar can see his power is not his own. His achievements were not self-made. His rule is not for his glory. It's only then that he can begin to boast not in his own greatness, but in the one who is truly greater.
I remember some time ago talking to a friend who had something of a, a spiritual wake-up call. It wasn't dramatic, wasn't a big dream that terrified them at night, but they recognised it as a bit of a wake-up call. By worldly standards, they were incredibly successful, they were really well respected in the profession, they were content at home, they had more than enough resources, but they were convicted actually through the book of Daniel that slowly over time, something was changing incrementally in their heart. That, that increasingly they realised that they were attributing the success to themselves. That slowly over time, it was creeping along and they began to recognise that not only was there security in the fleeting things they built up, but they were increasingly marvelling at what they had achieved. They were increasingly directing the glory to themselves. But they decided to draw a line. They were resolved that recognising that all they had was from God, that they would once again daily direct all in service to the Lord in praise. You might think if you were crawling around like an animal, you'd be a lot snappier than Nebuchadnezzar to come to your senses. But praise God for his patience as he waits for us to lift our eyes to him. That he, the king of kings, would humble himself even to the cross. The biggest wake-up call of all time to us, that we might lift our eyes to him and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you in great confidence because of Jesus. Lord, please help us in your kindness and your mercy, by the power of your Spirit, to really help us to see clearly that you are truly the one who rules. Lord, please convict us of any pride that you might be at work in our hearts, that we might be resolved, that we would direct everything to you in thanks, that we might direct everything to you in praise. Lord, please help us to live on all of our front lines in a way that really shows, really demonstrates who really rules. We thank you so much for your patience with us and that you would humble yourself even onto the cross that we might lift our eyes to you and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.